we're pretty much halfway through this retreat. It's kind of surprising how it seems to move rather slowly at the beginning and then sometimes rather surprisingly we find that we've been here four days. And one of the things that it's perhaps very useful to reflect on at the midpoint of a retreat is the place that we really came in on in terms of why we're here. It's easy to find after the initial challenges, struggles, the discomforts and the various aches and pains of body and some of the craziness and the busyness of the mind begins to settle at least a little, you know, just some degree to which we feel so we feel able to be more at ease. There can be, I think, quite quickly sometimes a sense of, ah, it's getting comfortable. And very quickly we would settle for comfort, having perhaps arrived with aspirations of depth and profundity and transformation, finding out that it turns out to be actually quite difficult. Comfort sounds quite good and, you know, it's, okay, I'll settle for that. And what can be really useful to reflect upon is to what extent we may intentionally or unintentionally make our practice into a subtle reenactment of our life. And particularly insofar as our life can very easily be about simply being comfortable. To gain safety, certainty, security. This is really what so much of the comfort-seeking of life is about. To be in a situation where we won't be impinged upon by those things that we do not wish to be impinged upon by. And we might ask, are we using this practice as a vehicle for freedom? Or are we using this practice as a way to try and establish a a different and perhaps more sophisticated or subtle, but nonetheless a way of being comfortable, a different way of being comfortable? Of course, there's a certain value in comfort. It allows us to relax, and relaxing is something very useful, very powerful. But at the same time, we need to be in touch with a certain edge, you could say, a certain reality of our existence that fuels and inspires the spiritual journey. A sense of recognizing that the seeking for comfort is really a a tragic and unsatisfactory substitute for living our life fully in its dynamic and vital manifestation. 
But it's nonetheless really tempting to want to be comfortable, to want to be safe, to create a container around us or within us in which we are not impinged upon. And there's this basic reality that we are invited and encouraged to address. In fact, it seems at times compelled to face in retreat and in our lives. This human vulnerability that we are exposed in life. We cannot protect ourselves in absolute terms. In so many different ways, this is so. We might seek to be the right temperature. We want to be warm. Just so that we don't have to feel the discomfort of coolness. Look at how much energy we put into simply being warm. And how I remember, we don't do it on this retreat, but in some retreats I teach, we do standing meditation. I remember once doing standing meditation with a group of students in Sweden, standing outside. And were they not that dissimilar to what we had here? And it was six in the morning, sun just coming up, well, actually must have been seven for the sun to be coming up at that time, but later. And it was really cold, and it was very interesting, because we, after we did the standing meditation outside, and everyone was really wrapped up warmly, but it, the cold still got in, standing still. Just looking around the faces, there was a brightness. There was a aliveness that you don't see when you're cosily cocooned. And yet we forget that too easily. We forget that our sensitivity as human beings is part of what enables us to be awakened. It's like we're we're so sensitive. It takes, you know, we can exist in just a a very narrow range of temperature, staying on temperature. You know, temperature goes from how much? Minus 273 centigrade. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's... Minus a lot in Fahrenheit. <laughs> to, you know, plus, I don't know, 2,400,000 degrees in the center of the sun. That's the sort of the measurable range of temperatures. Something like that. And human beings exist in this narrow little band between about, well, in terms of being comfortable, I guess between about, I don't know, 18 and 26. That's kind of comfortable. But less than that, we get cool. A bit more than that, we get hot. And of course, in the core of our body, between about, I wish I could, trans- I should have translated this for Fahrenheit, shouldn't I? Do you know what I'm talking about? Probably not. Okay. Well, it's quite a small range. And, and you, <laughs> I didn't think of that. When I'm teaching with my wife, she always goes to, Catherine, she always goes to the trouble of finding out the words in the local language for all the key concepts, which I usually don't do. And I'm sure she would have thought of thinking of Fahrenheit. Anyway. She's not here. Um, But you know our core body temperature can't waver more than about two or three degrees either side of its 37 and approximately 37 and centigrade and whatever that is in Fahrenheit. There's not a lot of movement that we can survive in temperature-wise. It's like there's this very limited range 
that's survivable for us. And it's a real pointer to the, the fact of this sensitivity and vulnerability and the, in a way, remarkableness, the remarkable good fortune that we turned up on a planet that was approximately the right temperature. I mean, acknowledging that, we might be a little bit less bothered by the fact that sometimes it's a bit too hot or a bit too cold. But that's just, you know, the physical. Emotional, we're incredibly sensitive beings. We're so easily touched. And we feel the effects of the impact of our lives so deeply. There's a story that, for me, speaks to this, of, a, of an old samurai walking, samurai warrior, walking down a dusty country lane, contemplating deep spiritual questions. And he comes, to a, he, find, he comes across a small, wizened old Zen monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road. And he comes up to him and says, Ah, Zen monk, can you tell me about the meaning of life? Zen monk, what do you want to know? I want to know about the difference between heaven and hell. Zen monk looks up at him and says, Well, samurai, you look like you could do with a bath. Your robes are torn and dirty. Your, rust, your sword is rusty and you smell bad. Why should I tell you about this? And the warrior, old though he was, was a still a proud samurai and he lifted up his sword. You, cheeky little pipsqueak, I could take your head off. And he's just about to end that monk's life. The monk looks up at him, smiles, says, that's hell. And the samurai, looking down at this little monk, he says, wow, he's just risked his life and he doesn't know how close he was to losing it to give me this lesson. And he suddenly he's overflowing and filled with gratitude and appreciation for this teaching. He's beaming down at this little monk and the monk looks up at him and says, that's heaven. And we probably know this, how just a word can touch us so deeply that in this case we might we might not actually get a sword out, but we might think like, I could kill that person. Just a word or two that somehow we've taken personally can be so sensitive. And likewise, a, a kindly, well-placed word can touch us so deeply, move us to the very core of our heart and our being. Again, this to me speaks to the the vulnerability of what it means to be human, exposed to being touched so deeply. And we are, all of us, in so many ways. And yet that vulnerability is something that we mostly fear and shy away from. It's something that we feel threatened by because in that vulnerability, sometimes it's painful, it's tender, it hurts to be impinged upon it. It hurts to be touched. And we'd almost like to live in a world in which nothing touched me, which we were safe, which we wouldn't have to be afraid of being impacted. And this leads to the 
engagement with life of trying to produce safety, trying to configure and organize circumstances and situations and experiences so I will not be impacted, so that I will not be touched. This discomfort with human vulnerability, our difficulty in really acknowledging it. It's like we don't really want to know, do we? I was having a very fascinating conversation with uh, someone just recently about the sort of, in a way, the security vulnerabilities of the internet and computers and all of that. It was just really amazing, thinking, gosh, you know, we like to think these things are sort of safe and our information is kind of safe and it was reasonably apparent because this person seemed to know what he was talking about. Like, not at all. You think, gosh, how much money and time and energy we put into trying to get things safe. And of course, it's obvious when we look at it, you can't make things safe. Life isn't like that. But because we don't admit or acknowledge that to ourselves, there's this process of busy driven, frenetic activity trying to trying to somehow work out all the difficult things, all the dangers that we might be exposed to, and somehow guard ourselves against them. And how much of your activity in a day or in one's life is with regard to the things that we wish to avoid and how we're going to about to go about doing that? How much time do we spend doing that? And what's the effect of spending our life trying to avoid our life, in fact? Some years ago, I was teaching a retreat outdoors in the foothills of the Pyrenees in France. and So we were camping out in the, the relative wilderness of these foothills. And one of the wonderful things about practicing in the wilderness is that you can't control it at all, and it kind of comes pouring in effectively, whether it's rain, snow, sunshine, or various creatures. And on this particular occasion, I wasn't really appreciating that fact so much because there was this biting fly, a bit like the, the deer fly you have here, called horse flies there, similar. And it was buzzing around and buzzing around, and I was completely sort of... <laughs> I didn't want to hurt it because I was on a retreat. I'd taken the priest. I was teaching the retreat. You know, but it was like, go away. I don't want to hurt you. But I was getting more and more tense and tight and angry. And it was like, ah. But there seemed no way out. I didn't want to kill this thing. I couldn't scare it away. And it was miserable. It was horrible. It was like this intense, like inner screaming condition of, ah. And then... After some time, and probably an embarrassingly long time, given what I spend so much time talking about, I thought, oh, just a moment, maybe you could be with us. Maybe you could just see what happens. And so, you know, by then I had about six or eight little bites where it had bit me and I brushed it off, and it bit me somewhere else and I brushed it off. And so I just stopped and I came, and it landed, and I watched, and it bit, and I thought, ah. I thought, oh, well, she's not that bad. Actually, by far the worst part was the ah, and the constant. Every time I brushed it off, it came back. When I left it there, it took probably the equivalent of three drops and left. It was gone. And I was like, "Wow, 
That was surprisingly easy. <laughs> but it's not just the being, it's not, I don't think it's just the, the, the impingement, the unpleasant sensation that is in there. It's the fact that that's not why I was pushing it away or why we fight against it, such experience so much. It's because what it represents is our vulnerability, and we don't want that. We don't want to be an open system that's subject to things coming in. Whether they be sounds that we don't like, so we think, you know, I want to block my ears up so I don't have to listen to people. Of course, we can't block our ears up and sort of keep the world out. It doesn't work. There's ways in which we harden or rigidify to try and resist life. And that's part of what we contact and experience when we're here. We feel the tightness and the hardness of our energetic resistance to the, to the fluidity, to the openness, and to the consequent vulnerability of a living system. Because that's the nature of a living system. It must be that way or it couldn't be alive. And so if we look at this, we see there's this, this way in which we're trying to get safety. We're trying to protect ourselves and a lot of it comes down to not just the sense of our outer safety, but wanting to have a sense of inner security, an inner safety or an inner certainty. And yet it's really interesting. One of the important reflections in Dharma practice, which Heather touched on yesterday, but it, it kind of comes into this. It's like, if we look for security, we see nothing's reliable. We see that. We see that again and again and again. We can't make a system to protect ourselves that can't be unmade. The only certainty, the only security we have in life, the only thing we can really rely on that no one could take away is the fact that one day all of this comes to an end. And if we started off thinking, I'm looking for something safe and secure and reliable I can really trust in, and actually what turns out to be the only thing we can really rely on and trust in is the fact that one day we're going to die, it doesn't provide the feeling we were hoping for <laughs> when we started off looking for security. It really doesn't, does it? So it's like, what do we do here? What do we do with this situation? Sure, that safety, security, that sense of something that we can rely on is attractive, but when we get it, we think, actually, no, no, I don't know if I want this. I'm really not sure about that. So there is no escape from this condition, this vulnerability. There is no way around it. Can we enter it? Can we turn towards it? Can we allow the very openness of our living system, the fact that it is something open, not closed, the fact that that's open, can we allow that to be something we explore? Not something that we seek to cover over or hide away, 
from. What would that mean for us? What would that be like? To abandon the search for security. Because we realize, we understand, we have the wisdom. And we all have enough experience already, we don't need more. But the wisdom is when we understand what that experience is telling us. And the wisdom that comes from our experience says that security is not found in this. These things that come and go, that change. This mind, body and world. Security is not found in this. And as Helen Keller said, who I'm sure you all know, lived. A, she was a woman who was uh, blind and deaf and yet lived a remarkable life. She once said, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature and nor do the children of man experience it. Avoiding danger is in the long run no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. So what is this glorious adventure? It is an adventure of discovery. A journey in which we seek understanding rather than comfort. We seek learning through experience rather than satisfaction from experience. And this is the shift. This is the pivot point. This is the place where our life turns from being bound in the the limitation and the unsatisfactoriness of an inevitably unsuccessful endeavor to gain satisfaction from things. It turns to the spiritual in which understanding, realization, awakening is what becomes the pull, the call, the motivation and the fulfillment of our engagement with life. But that's hard. It's hard to make that shift because within there's this, it seems, and we encounter it and you speak about it with us in the interviews and we know it well ourselves. There's this sense within of, of, of needing to protect our vulnerability. And it's true, of course, we do need to, and so far as we can, it's totally appropriate to protect and preserve our physical well-being, protect and preserve our heart's well-being. I'm not suggesting you, you know, feed yourself to the local sort of insect population or anything like that. Probably not many of them around at this time. But understanding that that taking care of the physical well-being and the emotional well-being precious and important as it is, an expression of kindness and compassion as it is, it's not 
it's not the be-all and end-all of our existence. It's not ultimately the, the deepest basis of our, of our satisfaction of true happiness. But the sense of, of, of being afraid, of, of feeling exposed or vulnerable and needing to protect that, this we need to look at, we need to examine. What is this experience? Where does it come from and what's it about? What's true in it? Because the fact that it happens is true. That sense of feeling threatened and wishing to protect. That's true. That's real. It has its validity. But there may be something within that that is not as it appears. I remember a few years ago at Guy House, uh, a centre in England, um, some of the staff were looking at ways to reduce our environmental impact. And one of them came up with a rather wonderful idea of putting a short message on the toilet rolls to encourage people not to throw them away so they could be recycled. And what this... uh, staff member wrote on the toilet rolls one day before a retreat which I was going to teach they wrote on the toilet roll save me (laughs) and on some of the other toilet rolls and some of the other bathrooms we can be saved (laughs) and when I walked in it was really interesting because without really meaning to have this whole sort of in a way projected fantasy arise in my mind I imagined what if you came in and didn't understand that? <laughs> and you thought, it's a message. <laughs> Someone's in danger. They need saving. And there's more than one of them. You know? And these messages, all, and they've obviously put them in the only room where it's safe to leave it, where they won't be seen. And you'd get really concerned, and you, you'd, oh, that's what's going up on, in the bell tower, which the ladder's been taking. You know, they've got some prisoners up there. Or, And it's like this whole sense of how quickly one could imagine there was somebody behind the message who was in danger. But rather obviously, because we know what's going on, and we find it rather humorous, is that, oh no, we know. What it's saying is, pay attention to this. Don't just throw it away. And yet, what about the voice inside that says, save me, help How might we relate to that from a point of wisdom? Because clearly we need to pay attention to it. It's it's got some useful information for us. But what it tends to suggest to us is that there's somebody that needs saving. A little bit like the toilet rolls. And so we need to look at this part of the message. Because when it comes up, it doesn't mean I shouldn't take care of something that seems dangerous to me. It's not, I'm not suggesting you should disregard the message. But look a little bit carefully, because the message might be suggesting something which, when unexamined, leads, rather than to a 
finding a sense of safety, in fact an amplification of the sense of fear. And so we, we're asked to look at what is this that feels to be at the core of the vulnerability? At the sense of, the sense of that which feels threatened. The threat we can acknowledge. But what is this that feels threatened? What is that experience? What happens if we turn our attention towards this and examine it? And it's this the sense of me that feels threatened, that doesn't want to be touched by something uncomfortable, that wants to exist forever, just like this, and have everything the way it wants it to be. What is this sense, this experience? What is it referring to? What's real about it? To understand vulnerability and to understand freedom, this we must understand. So we can consider, well, how does it arise? This sense of location or reference point to which the fear seems to be relating, to which the feeling of vulnerability seems connected, and from which the disparate urge and activity to protect and defend and control and secure seems to emanate or seems to come out. What is this? Because if left unquestioned, we become entangled within it and within its activity. And the first most obvious sense we might recognize it through is the sense of being subject to experience. It's sort of like experiences happening here, over to me, on the sights, there's sounds, there's smells, that sense of experience coming in. And it seems to refer to me. It seems to be happening to me. This, the fly bit, bit my leg. It did. I saw it. I was there. It wasn't your leg. It's for sure. Or I eat something. And it feels like, yeah, or I hear something. And there's a sense of, yeah, it's somehow, it's happening to me. Thoughts, sound, smell, taste, touch, sights. It's like it's coming in. And there's the sense of receiving it. That appears to be located, appears to be here. And yet, there's nothing we can particularly put our finger on apart from the implication of, well, it seems to be being received here, so there must be something here. But when we look, all we find is sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, and thought. I'm confident that no one in here has had an experience of anything else today or in your life, because that's what we experience. And yet we have this idea that those experiences are happening to something or someone called me, but they're not. They're simply happening. And yet they're known, they're experienced. 
So there's that, first of all, that sense of self that arises around it's happening to me. I'm the subject of all these experiences. They're what? Coming to me. Then there's the sense of agency, the sense of I'm doing it, I'm making it happen. I'm somehow configuring my experience or this experience or this life through my choices, my activities. Now, again, there's a certain way in which we are influencing what's going on. There's no doubt about that. We have a profound influence, in fact. But maybe not in the way we imagine. The most primary elements of our experience, the things that sustain us moment by moment, our breath. Is that something you're making happen? That you're in charge of? I mean, one of the really remarkable and fortunate things about the breath that we notice is it seems to do it, this breathing thing, by itself. Have you noticed that? It's really fortunate that we don't have to be mindful for our breath to work. Because if any of you had spaced out for more than three minutes, that'd be it. (laughs) Of course, if we did have to be mindful for our breath to work, probably by now we'd all be really good at being mindful of our breath. But we take it a bit more casually. Because we know that it just keeps coming. It seems to, at least. Oh, of course, one day it will stop. But that's also not really up to us. The life of our body that sustains us unfolds by itself. Our life, are we making this happen? If we persist in that idea, it's inevitably a struggle. An image one of my teachers used, which I always really liked, he suggests it's a little bit like going for an ocean journey. You're on your boat, you're on the wheel, and there's you know the currents and the winds and the tides and all the different conditions you're dealing with. And sometimes the boat seems to go the way you're steering, and sometimes it seems to go you know you're steering this way, and the boat goes that way, and you're kind of wondering what's going on. And at some point you you get curious, so you go downstairs under the, under the deck and you have a look at the mechanism, and you realize the steering wheel isn't attached to the rudder. <laughs> and all that time and trouble you're putting in going trying to go make my life go this way. And sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. What does that say to us? It's kind of scary in a certain way, isn't it? It's kind of unsettling. Are you prepared to be a little bit unsettled by your practice? Are you willing for that to happen? Because if you think of what it is to be not, to be settled, sort of like, I don't know, some loose material in a container slowly packing down into the bottom of it, settling. Of course we use settling in terms of allowing the mind to settle. There's a value in that settling. But not if we stop or lose that sense of curiosity and that sense of the the reality of life as something that's not 
secure, that's not fixed, that's not fixable. If we get out of touch with that, then we've lost something incredibly powerful, something that can open us very deeply, very keenly. We talk about opening, being open, and I use the phrase of life being an open system, you know, an open living system, not something closed. To be open is to be vulnerable in all levels, in all ways, in many ways which you're exploring here and just being with, meeting your experience, opening to that, being vulnerable to the touch of your life. We could say that's what we're doing here. And yet that very vulnerability, that openness is also what allows it to open and reveal, to open and transform. And what it opens is possibility, is potentiality. To be fixed, to be closed, may give the appearance of certainty or safety. But in fact, what it is is the loss of possibility, the loss of potentiality, the loss of of the vital, dynamic element of being. So, how willing are you to be that open? To perhaps not at the first opportunity always seek for safety, security, familiarity, comfort. Because that's only ever an illusion, and an illusion that leads to complacency. This body, this mind, The vulnerability that we associate with it is both real and yet not real. And only insofar as we are defined by and identified with all of this is the ultimate vulnerability which we shy away from, one to which we are exposed. Because the ultimate vulnerability we shy away from is the vulnerability of death. That reality. That certainty. And there is no way around that. So why should we spend our time and our energy attempting to not let that in? 
Because every place in which we are impinged upon in our vulnerability, it's, it's simply reminding us of that fact. It's simply telling us that this is part of our truth. But it's not all of the truth. Because when we're truly open, when we recognize that all of this that we call mind and body, that we we could say inhabit, that we live in and through, that this does not define life. It simply expresses it. And in this not defining life, we can start to sense, to recognize, to resonate, to realize that there is a a dimension of being that is not subject to death. And yet, that is not apart from all that is. But that so far and so long as we're consumed with our attempt to protect, to preserve, to prevent impingement, to somehow make that which is necessarily, inherently and crucially vulnerable, not so. If so long as we're trying to do that, so long as we're trying to make that which is vulnerable somehow not, our energy and our life is consumed in that endeavor. And the discovery which that vulnerability points to and reveals hard to see. But not impossible. So can we use this time, these days we have, this precious opportunities, these fortunate conditions, which will not be with us for that long or forever, by any means. This opportunity here, this retreat, don't start thinking about the retreat you're going to do next time. It's really easy, isn't it? We think, oh, it's going pretty well. I'll do a longer retreat next time. Maybe I'll become a monk or a nun. (laughs) Don't waste this opportunity in that fantasy. Because this is the only one we have. I'd like to read you a piece from Ajahn Sachito, who's an English monk, lives in England, who's a friend and a teacher of mine. He teaches also here. He once said, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. 
There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going. Past the area where you can't control it anymore. And trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honor truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. May we all have the, the courage and the faith to trust our vulnerability, the openness of our living human system, and entering wholeheartedly into it. Come to realize and recognize, as Ajahn so beautifully puts it, the joy of the boundless, the joy of the deathless, the mysterious vastness of life. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.